At Aussie, when it comes to home loans, we've been there. From Katoomba to the Kimberley. In cafes, on concalls with upsizes, downsizes, first-timers and refinances. Whoever you are, wherever your corner is, we're in it. Working with you, your way. To not just get you over the line, but to write your name on it. That's how our brokers have helped over a million Aussies everywhere sign here. To let us do the same for you, go straight to Aussie at aussie.com.au. Australian Credit Licence 246786. Welcome everyone to this bonus edition of Garden of Doom. This is episode 65 and this is in conjunction with the NACON conference, the Nephilim Anthropology Conference, taking place this very Saturday in London, but you can see it via Zoom. Um, so I'm on Eastern time, so it's 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. local time, but uh, DVDs will also be available as well, and there's also a VIP registration. So we'll get more of that information to you later on, but my guest today is Mark Carpenter. So Mark has a pretty extensive bio, but he is part of the conference. He's one of the panelists. He's a scholar and an explorer who specializes in the cultural anthropology of human origins, He's an expert in the biblical Nephilim, who he has linked his anthropological research to. Mark's lived alongside Native Americans, learning their traditions. He's studied ancient Polynesian customs. He's done extensive archaeological research of prehistoric Mesoamerica. He has a double undergrad in anthropology and religion and a master's degree in English. He studied anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, a very good school, then received a merit scholarship to Stevenson University and eventually earned his master's and received distinguished scholar honors for the highest GPA in the program. He's had archaeological internships in Mexico and Hawaii with the INAH and the Hawaiian equivalent. And then he ultimately decided upon doing independent writing and research. He is a frequent contributor to the Ancient Origins magazine and Facebook group, and he's an emerging author. You are now listening to The Garden of Doom. Jeff Lipman. So, Mark, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for joining us here in the garden and sharing this information with us. And uh, I guess primarily our topic today is giants in the Americas. And I'm going to let you uh, take it from there. Okay. Well, first, uh, let me say I appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll just start a little bit. Uh, you covered my academic background really well. Um, I appreciate that. But I, I would just like to, you know, just just run through it a little bit. Um, it, it was always a dream of mine to, to be an archaeologist, an anthropologist. Uh, as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with ancient culture and ancient history. I always imagined it as a, as a grand puzzle. And um, but what I discovered was that uh, it's all very uh, uh, highly specialized and compartmentalized. You know, there's like all these very complex little niche uh, specialties. And then that's really not very conducive to discovery. You've got all these factions fighting over uh, all these things constantly. And then, uh, you know, it's like the anthropologists and then you have the epigraphers. These are people who who decipher the dead languages and the glyphs and whatnot. And and then there's the archaeologists 
scientists and there's the forensic anthropologists and everybody's just constantly arguing with each other. Yeah, I hear that a lot. I mean, I hear from Cliff Dunning, I hear from Mohammed Ibrahim, I, you know, I hear it all over the place. Um, and ironically, I'm reading the book by Avi Loeb, um, who's a, the head of the Harvard Astrophysics Department. Oh, and, yes. Oh, yes. And, and he mentions that. And he is. I mean, what's what's more academia insider than than that? And he acknowledges that as, as well. I saw an, an author on that, that I've recorded them holding off till UFO month, which is later on down the line. But he he said that uh, anthropology is a, a subset of archaeology. And I didn't want to correct him, but it really isn't. Uh, or the, or he said the reverse, and and they're not. They're they're very separate disciplines, often often overlapping and wanting the same territory and resources. But yeah, but uh, what you're saying is is you know I hear it all the time. Yeah, and uh, I, I love that you you dropped his name because I'm a big fan of his uh, for thumbing his nose. At, at the um, uh, the conventional academic narrative, he's 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 uh, he's chagrined quite a few of his colleagues with some recent headlines, and that always uh, that always makes me happy. Yeah, and well, I guess because he can, right? That's well, that's right. Once you're Harvard's top astronomer, you're pretty much beyond reproach, no matter what you say, and that's that's precisely why it chagrins them so much because nobody has better qualifications than he. <clears throat> True enough, but I'll let you go on with it. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so the compartmentalization, that wasn't enough to uh, to get rid of me. Uh, but then I started discovering things that were even more disturbing, which was that in reality, the academic uh, structure is, is, is more like a rigid orthodoxy. And, and, and if you stray from the from the party line, from the from the scriptures, if you will. <laughs> um, well, then you you become blackballed, uh, unless unless of course you, you you're already a Harvard professor with tenure, you know. But um, for an up and comer, you're you're pretty much required to toe the party line. And uh, and then that even sort of that sort of metastasizes into what ultimately uh, had me leave, which is that. Uh, this cognitive dissonance sets in with the experts where if something, if evidence crops up that doesn't support their conventional narrative, well, then they, they will suppress it. And then that, then you get into the realm of scientific misconduct. And, and, and it was when I started to come across those types of irregularities that I said, you know, enough is enough. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna research independently because I don't want to be a part of this. So I know that uh, you have a lot of experience with the prehistoric American connection to the Nephilim and mm. or the giants, which, you know, we'll get into whether or not you think they're the same thing or what the connection is. Um, but, you know, I've heard from others and, and you know, on, on shows, my shows, other shows, books I've read that the Smithsonian ha has been, you know, has... Tons and tons of stuff. And then, of course, the other, you know, uh, culprit is often said to be the, the Vatican and the archives, uh, you know, and that they hide things or destroy things. Uh, but I've heard a lot about the Smithsonian, and you know, basically starting from the turn of the last century. And 
that just surprised me. Uh, you know, first of all, I didn't know the Smithsonian was named after a guy named Smithson, um, but that's neither here nor there. But um, you noted some in some of your presentations, so I didn't. I don't want to jump around necessarily, but it seemed to tie into what you were talking about that there's an orthodoxy that sort of protects itself, and if in fact the Smithsonian, um, you know, is, is hiding information that ties into that now. I heard another counter narrative regarding the, the Smithsonian, which is that while they may have engaged in some of that, uh, a lot of the disappearing evidence is not uh, ill will at all. It, it's that there was a repatriation act in the 90s that required them to return uh, all Native American uh, artifacts and bones and stuff like that to to the various tribes so that they could uh, honor them and bury them themselves. So a lot of it may have been well-intentioned, but still lose the information. So, uh, th but this is not the Jeff show. This is the Mark Carpenter show. So, uh, you can take it from there. Uh, yeah, well, um, you know, uh, it took me a while of, of researching before I actually started to buy into the possibility that there was um a, a cover up um by the smithsonian but i've come to the conclusion that's absolutely the case um and yes okay so right uh uh, uh napa the the native american uh repatriate or nar whatever um the repatriation act uh yeah it's, it's complicated um the administration that passed that law, I really don't think they had the Native Americans and their culture and, and the restoration of it at, at heart. Um, yeah, it, it, it's complicated, but I, I've found instances where they claim uh, remains have been repatriated. But in reality, I know that's not true because before they can repatriate the remains, they have to first do analysis on them to make sure that the correct tribal ancestors are receiving uh, the remains. There was a legal case by a, uh, a superintendent of uh, Effigy Mound National Park in Wisconsin, and he he was just hoarding bones <laughs> these bones had been in the in the in the possession of of his office for decades and um when the repatriation act came around he was just hoarding these bones literally in his garage <laughs> uh, and he got he got busted and um the whole thing was quite a scandal and he, he essentially said that he was told by the national park service to do this um so yeah, the the repatriation of of remains is very complicated, but I, I can say that the irregularities begin long before that. I mean, a, a century before that. So uh, when when the Smithsonian began excavating these burial mounds, uh, they were almost immediately in cover up mode. So that's um, yeah, I, I can. Uh, Maybe we, we yeah. should back just a second and tell people what a burial mound is. I mean, I think most people know, but let's not assume. And 
I, you know, even I have recently learned just how many burial mounds there are just in the United States, let, let alone everywhere else. And, and I mean, as I understand it, there's uh, there's a whole term called Mississippian or Mississippian. Yes. Uh, plus there's mounds up and down the, the entire uh, span of the Mississippi. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the Mississippi, the Ohio River Valley. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's really interesting that the history of America, it, it just relegates these uh, mounds. Really, what, what, what we're talking about is the prehistoric culture of, of North America. And they uh, they just relegate the prehistoric aspect of it to these footnotes about na- various Native American tribes. But it's actually much more complicated than that. Uh, but yeah, just to back up. So uh, before European colonists arrived, the landscape of North America was absolutely bejeweled with thousands of uh, well, burial mounds, yes. So what they are is, um, they're actually very similar uh, to these features, the, these man-made features we find all over Europe and actually Asia, which is a whole nother can of worms. But it's essentially an earthen mound where a chamber, a crude, well, in some instances, a crude chamber, in some instances, a, a, an elaborate stone chamber. Uh, is created, and then earth is piled up on top of it, creating sort of a man-made hill. So it's basically like a mausoleum, but then it gets grown over or shoveled over and then grown over. Exactly, exactly. Although, I should point out, though, not all of these, uh, you know, they're generally just sort of lumped together as burial mounds. Some of them do seem to have been uh, man-made subterranean uh, ceremonial spaces as well. So they'll often couple each other. There will be an area where there's lots of burial mounds, and then there might be one sort of massive uh, uh, ceremonial mound, for lack of a better term. Sounds like a Gobekli Tepe. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there is a, a pattern. Um, it's, it's really complicated, but, but suffice it to say that there seems to be uh, some degree of cultural diffusion or hyperdiffusion, meaning a culture that stems from one origin and then spreads, although mutating, it spreads, uh, you know, geographically. So yes, these, these mounds uh, whatever their purpose, in some cases burial, in some cases not ceremonial, uh, they exist. Yeah, Korea, Europe, uh, all the way to North America. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, I think maybe we should also go into, uh, you know, how do, what do you, how do you define, or, or what's your interpretation of the Nephilim, and how are they connected to this story? Yes. Um, well, so the Nephilim, as as I'm sure you know, but we'll just do a little review just for everybody's sake. In in, in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, um, it describes these uh, equally enigmatic uh, sons of God who see that the daughters of of mankind are fair, uh, 
and they uh, come down and interbreed with them, thereby spawning the Nephilim. And uh, the, the Greek translation translates Nephilim as giants. And uh, the Genesis um, excerpt goes on to uh, refer to them as the warriors of old, the heroes of renown, or perhaps that's reversed, the, 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 warrior, the heroes of old, the warriors of renown. Something um, I've seen yeah. great men of renown, but yeah. Yeah, right. There's various sort of iterations of that. And then and then there are more details later on. They're they're cryptic, uh, but it refers to King Og of Bashan or Og. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, he was described as um, well, it says that his I've heard it mistranslated many times as bed. But it's, it's actually resting place. His resting place was made of iron, and it was 13 feet long. And the biblical authors make note that uh, it, it, it was like an oddity, a curiosity, uh, till this day, meaning their day. And it is still an oddity, curiosity, uh, to this day. <laughs> uh, but Ab was said to be a Rephaim, and a Rephaim would be a descendant of uh, Rapha who was one of these heroes of old, warriors of renown, sort of large stature, um, semi-divine beings. In, in what culture and roughly what year? So, if, like, for example, Assyrian 55 BC or 5,500 years ago, whatever it is. Yeah, well, you know, when, when you get into the... Um, so how this links to my research is that I have learned of a pattern. Okay. And the pattern is multidimensional and it reaches across, it's virtually universal in, in, in ancient culture. And I, I relate it back always to the Nephilim simply because they have the biblical account sort of has the most comprehensive description, not to mention most people are, you know, familiar. More people are familiar with the biblical account than uh, random ancient culture. But to answer your question, as very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I, I think the entire chronology of human history is uh, needs needs reevaluation. Yeah, I, I just finished a book by uh, Jim Wilson uh, called Censoring God. And while he doesn't come out and say it, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have him on the show in a, uh, and interview him later this month, I'll ask him. But I think he suggests that basically the, histo the historical chronology of the Bible should be more or less doubled from 6,000 years to closer to 12,000 years. And then we have a better idea. Yeah, yeah. Um uh, just post flood, rather, you know, you know, post, po you know, post flood, not pre flood. Sure, sure. I, I was gonna say, to, for for my money, <laughs> the the reference point that I like to, um, or that I detect, I should say, in the in the in the biblical text is this deluge, which is also universal in terms of ancient cultures. This myth of a uh, or alleged myth of 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 a, of a great deluge, 
I am pretty confident that that is a stylized description of the Younger Dryas extinction event, which happened somewhere around 12,500 BC. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident uh, about that because that event did happen. We, we, I mean, that's scientifically proven. We know the woolly mammoths and the Clovis. Uh, cultures and, and and the mastodons they they went extinct very rapidly and there was a huge climate change right at that time um but you know I, I'm, I'm glad you brought the, uh, the the timeline up because i think you know the public should know that you know the the first modern uh, anatomically modern humans appear in the archaeological or paleontological record, you know, around 200, 400,000 years ago. And written history really is only, what, you know, 8,000 years old as we know it. So that means roughly 97% of all human existence is a mystery. <laughs> right. You know, so, yeah, so um, where exactly this all falls in the pre-deluge history is incredibly difficult to... Uh, and you're only talking about Homo sapiens sapiens, not even, you know, oh. all, the, all the different Homo erectus. Uh, right. dates back to, what, one million years ago or even maybe two million? Yeah, yeah, according to the conventional narrative, uh, some of these... Um, some of these early, early uh, 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 hominid ancestors go back two million years, but I should say I'm suspicious of of those uh, findings. Uh, I know for certain some of those some of those findings have been fudged. Um, I'm not saying none of none. Of, well, you know that's complicated, but they um, they find tiny fractions of a skeleton. And then they create a composite and they say, oh, we can tell by this tiny little bone fragment here that this was an upright primate ape. And, and I just have my suspicions that they might just be confirming their own biases when in reality it just might be a very ancient ape. Well, confirmation bias is, is certainly real. And I mean, I suspect if they found the shoulder bone alone, you know, of just a, a whale, a smaller whale, they might think that it was a big human. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's just really not possible to definitively say a whole lot about a species when all you have to go with is a tiny fraction of a skeleton. Even Even if you have a complete skeleton, that only really comprises like 10, 15 percent of, of, of an organism, right? Sure. So, you know, it, it's now sometimes, you know, sometimes you got a really complete skeleton. You, you can make some some definitive uh, statements. But so we so we don't know that the bottom line is we don't know where, when King Og, the what do you call him, the Raphaim um, yes. lived. But it, but it was during biblical times, which is somewhere within the last six to 12,500 years ago. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I'm, and I might have misunderstood a little bit. I, I thought you meant the entire Nephilim, like, as a as a species. But, but Og... Um, yeah, that's another open question, because, right. I, you know, because I've heard people talk about pre-flood Nephilim versus post-flood Nephilim, and, and 
that that seems to indicate that the giants and the Nephilim are two different things because the Nephilim were biblical, uh, you know, they, 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 during the biblical times. However, whatever that time period is, which is generally um, slightly post-flood, uh, though I guess Adam and Eve and then, you know, you get to Noah, you know, and there was a lot of begetting and begetting. So, um, right. But, right. but it seems like the Nephilim were the heroes of old. I, I mean, I don't know what old is if if your great great grandfather is is Adam. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, so so Og and, and the Raphaim, I think we can date them with relative uh, uh, proximity, as you were saying, they, he was certainly post uh, deluge. And then, well, and then further, there's just, you know, they calling him the king of Bashan. We, we can make some general statements as to like when civilization in this area occurred, but no, I mean, I think you hit it. You, you hit it very well as, you know, if I had to just throw a dart at it, I would, you know, maybe 8,000 years uh, BCE, uh, something like that. But then... Do we have any oh, idea what, where Bashan is? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the biblical region of, of Bashan and, and you know, Gath, like Goliath. In, in a moment, I'd like to talk about uh, Goliath and his descendants. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, my... My Levant geography might be a little murky, but uh, basically I think we're talking Jordan, Syria, Israel, uh, sort of, um, well, Israel is probably what today, modern Israel is today. We're probably talking slightly east of there. Is, is that Syria? Does Syria? Anyway, well, Jordan is directly east of Israel. Syria is north, but Lebanon is sort of sandwiched in there as well. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, in that general region. Um, but the Levantine, but if we just say the Levantine area, that's that's sort of everything south of Turkey and, and north of the, you know, the Sinai, uh, you know, the, the northern uh, fork of the uh, Gulf, not the Gulf, the Red Sea. Um so above the Sinai Desert and and basically, uh, you know, basically into Western Iraq is sort of the, the Levantine. Exactly, exactly, and that that is where precisely where Bashan would be located, and that is still where to this day uh, that archaeological anomaly. It, it's it, it's commonly known as the Giant's Wheel. There's an Arabic name for it that I can't pronounce off the top of my head. Um, but that is almost certainly the uh, the site referred to in the Bible as as Og's uh, resting place. Oh, the giant's wheel. Are you talking about the wheel that they found at the bottom of, I think it's the Galilee or is it the Dead Sea? Uh, again, <laughs> again, my my. Uh, or did they 11th. just find something and they're trying to retrofit it by saying that is the giant's wheel because that's what it looked like? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, this site has been on the radar for quite some time. We might be talking about two different things. I'm not. I'm not 100 percent, but um, I could. I could look it up really quickly. But it's it's a big uh, concentric circle of stone archaeological site. Uh, they're not quite sure what to make of it. You know. Um, uh, I don't. I, 
I tried to research the excavation history of it, and it is incredibly convoluted. Well, I'll make it easy without you having to look it up. If it's not underwater, it's it's two different places. But they might they I think that when they found this and and obviously feel free to look this part up because it was sure. it was within the last two years. Um, well, that's when I came across it. They were calling it the Giant's Wheel. Maybe speculating this was a different Giant's Wheel, or maybe there was more than one, or you know maybe it was a giant drain. I don't know, but it was at the bottom of. Um, you know, one of the inner bodies of water in in that region. It was either Galilee or the Dead Sea. Um, fairly okay. Simple. Yeah, yeah. So the site I'm talking about has been well known for you know decades, even centuries, even millennia. So this is probably another one. But I'm not surprised by that at all because it's probably it's probably a similar a similar tomb or tumuli or cromlech. Uh, which are just more terms for these weird ancient mounds in their various purposes. Um, but that one simply probably existed there before the, the uh, sea levels rose. And so it's probably the same thing, just not King Og of Bashan, some other Raphaim or, or, or Anakim uh, or something like that. Sure. So, but no, I'm, I'm excited to look into that now. I, I'm curious about that because I hadn't heard about that. Cool. Um, and, and it could just be fraud for all I know. But all right, so I'm going to let you go back to the, the Nephilim real quickly, and I'll try not to interrupt, and then you'll you'll bring us back to the Americas. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. So it's it's very easy to get sidetracked in this in this labyrinth of of, of myth and history. Um, That's what we do in the Garden of Doom. We meet. Yes, we, meander. we meander here. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, so, right, getting back to the Nephilim and, and how they relate uh, to prehistoric America. Well, okay. So this pattern, uh, when we when we when we really analyze the details that are available in the biblical narrative, we start to see a pattern of traits, of traits and characteristics and associations with the Nephilim. And the most obvious, as you've already pointed out, is is abnormal size. Right? They're they're really huge. I mean, Goliath. Okay. So okay. So before I get to Goliath, I should say, as Og, as Og is a uh, Rephaim, meaning a descendant of Rapha, who was a pure-blooded Nephilim, and probably what you were alluding to before that, a full-blown giant, as opposed to, okay, yeah, let me... <laughs> well, yeah, because a pure-blood Nephilim is half-blood, like half-blood, I, I guess, angel, half-human woman. Yes, I think that's where part of the uh, confusion comes in is that this this becomes um, very elaborate because if you have this this invasive species, okay, these Nephilim, but then over centuries they interbreed with mortal women just as their progenitors did. And then that spawns yet another hybridized species. And then and then the and then then this this mosaic of complex genetic hybridization begins to occur because you could have half half Nephilim interbreeding with full-blooded Nephilim or you know half-blooded Nephilim, you know, uh, interbreeding with mortal woman and so on and so forth, and you get this 
this bush, if you will, of of uh, genetic complexity. Sure. And it's yeah. like you're uh, it's like 23 and me, except you'd have 24. You know, you could have 24 and 24 would be Nephilim. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's where you start to. And the, and the it's actually impressive to me. It it it, it makes me it, it lends some uh, validation to me to the biblical authors because they actually list a variety of these uh, 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 bloodlines, if you will. They they mention the Raphaim, who are descendants of Rapha, and they mention the Anakim, who are descendants of Anak. And there's more, you know, the Zamzumim and the, the Giborim and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that is... Another time you're going to have to tell me what all those things are, but that'll, that's, that's too much me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically all the, the etymology, uh, of all the names essentially refers to some variety of, you know, uh, uh, a human subspecies with extraordinary capabilities, you know, like the, 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 uh, the Gibberim is something like the mighty, the mighty ones, you know, so they're all sort of variations of that. Uh, but so anyway, my research indicates that these bloodlines were historically real. They were historically real and they were, the anthropological term would be hominids, which means a a member of the Homo genus closely related to Homo sapien. Okay, so that would include like Neanderthal, Heidelbergensis man, uh, the well Cro-Magnon. They they have since attempted to fuse Cro-Magnon with Homo sapien, but uh, the point is they are human, but not Homo sapien. Right, and uh, my research indicates that these subspecies of human uh, absolutely existed. Well, I mean, we know they existed. We found remains, but but they existed in the cultural context as these mythological giants, or if you want to go, you know, to other traditions like the Nordic uh, traditions, they would, you know, trolls or Juntar or, or uh, Jotuns. Um, and, and basically every culture has different names for them. Um, and then, so, okay. So, so, uh, bear with me, <laughs> Sure. but, uh, the, so, uh, when they get to the descriptions of Goliath, who is a descendant of a Raphaim, so his relatives are, he's described as very large, very powerful and a great hunter and warrior. And then his, uh, in, in the book of Samuel, his relatives are also described. And when one of the descriptions indicates that he had six fingers and six toes, meaning he, uh, was a polydactyl, just meaning someone with supernumerary, uh, fingers and toes. But so these unique characteristics appear in the mythology of Native American cultures and Mesoamerican cultures. And we see this in the iconography. We see six-fingered, six-toed demigods, and they're always like very 
their stature, their physical stature is very large, and they also have social uh, status as well. They're often depicted as demigods, kings, and so forth. Which uh, which tribes would, would you find this in uh, maybe most prominently as opposed to specifically? Because I guess it's cross. Sure. Um, well, I first came across it when in studying the Maya. Uh, a lot of my early research was focused on the Maya. I, I was then, as I am now, uh, completely captivated uh, by uh, the mysteries of the ancient Maya. And in particular, I became fascinated with, uh, with the, the, the Maya site Palenque. And I, I did some work there and I studied there. And, and what we find in the iconography is the ruling elite of Palenque were depicted as larger, excuse me, than, uh, than the regular citizens. Uh, they had a variety of, of weird anatomical features, actually. They had, some of them had six fingers, six toes, elongated skulls, uh, sort of strange looking jaws. Um, and yeah, so, you know, it started to occur to me that there is a link here between these traits described in the biblical accounts and the iconography of the ancient Maya. But then the more I studied, the more I discovered that this pattern spreads through basically every single Native American culture. Okay. Well, uh, to take us to some of the uh, the ones that you studied or the better known sure. ones or or both sure sure well so in 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 studying the maya and studying palenque we found um uh for instance the uh uh well the probably the greatest discovery in the history of mayan archaeology was king pakal and the so-called red queen and uh, they have since named uh, this pyramid that it, within which he was entombed the Temple of Inscriptions, which is actually an erroneous name because we have deciphered the inscriptions and the ins inscriptions call it the, the tip of nine spears uh, is this pyramid within which he was entombed. And these inscriptions uh, clearly depict especially some of his relatives his son for instance uh with six toes and six fingers and again they're larger than uh the normal human beings and you know the the abnormal physical traits are really only just one part of the uh pattern but it certainly carries on so if we go over to say teotihuacan which is a incredibly just mind-boggling mysterious uh, ancient Mesoamerican site. It's it's not even Maya. <laughs> We're really not sure who built Teotihuacan. Uh, but there are legends uh, that were recorded from the Mesoamerican priests by the, the friars. And these accounts indicate that, you know, an army of giants, or, or actually not an army, but uh, a couple dozen giants built Teotihuacan after um, surviving a, a great flood, which is very interesting. And, um, and this pervades, you know, and then, well, as, as my research carried on and there were, 
you know, I'm, I'm really just glossing over all manner of like, uh, there are a lot of archaeological irregularities here, especially at Palenque. That, that was where I really lost my paradigm, where I, where I really lost faith in uh, archaeological institutions, uh, specifically the INAH and their benefactors, who I won't mention. Um, well, what is the INAH? So that people oh, can sure. Consider? Yeah, sure. That is the uh, National Institute of History and Anthropology in Mexico. Okay. And they are sort of the go-to fiefdom of all Mexican archaeology. But, but they, it's important to point out, though, that they are really just the lapdogs of the bigger, more powerful American institutions. Smithsonian, Rockefeller Foundation, um, you know, Nat National Geographic. National Geographic is very, very influential. And, okay. and, it's really, and it's really about money. You know, sure. the IN, the INAH can't compete uh, with these these other institutions. So the other institutions basically give them money to say, hey, you know, give us free reign whenever we want to do whatever we want to do. And uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, there's there's archaeological research that's being suppressed. There's uh, remains that are missing, including Pakal and the Red Queen. Um, uh, they have essentially closed the research book on them. So it doesn't matter who you are, or how many PhDs you have. Uh, it's literally impossible to, uh, you know, if you, if you if you got a PhD and you wanted to go analyze Pakal's remains or the Red Queen's remains, it's not happening. Gotcha. And, well, let's move off of what we can't know to what we do know. Sure, sure. So... Uh, the more my research carried on, we, we got to uh, this. There's a Mayan connection between, uh, well, all Mayan culture and southwestern American culture, like at Chaco Canyon. Now, Chaco Canyon, you know, the, the, the culture, the mysterious culture that set up shop there around mm, uh, 800, 900 A.D., they were they 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 were called the Anasazi, and the Anasazi translates to either the ancient ones or the ancient enemies. That term has since become a no-no in political correctness, and they simply refer to these people as the Chacoan culture. Uh, so there was a National Geographic article recently, I don't know, I want to say the last 10 years, uh, they've done a lot of, there's been a lot of extensive uh, excavations at Chaco Canyon, and even the, even the uh, uh, conformist archaeologists are scratching their heads and forced to acknowledge some weird things. It's still generally swept under the rug, but we know for sure, for instance, that the ruling elite of Chaco Canyon uh, were polydactyls so they had six fingers and six toes and we know this from the bones that were discovered the human remains as well as the iconography and there are prints in in stone like wet sort of ancient cement they printed their uh, hand and footprints into the stone where where is chaco canyon what part of the world 
Right. So we're talking southwestern United States. Uh, the best way to just generalize it is the Four Corners region. Right. So it's like New Mexico, Arizona, um, uh, Colorado, where they uh, intersect there, the Four Corners region. Are we talking about the San Luis Valley? Uh, I, I, you know, again, geography, um, uh, I'm not sure about the name of that particular valley. You know, we're, we're talking like, um, uh, well, yeah, I mean, it is called Chaco Canyon, but there's, um, uh, hold on one second. Okay. Well, we had Chris O'Brien on a a few episodes back. So if people want to hear about the San Luis Valley, Chris O'Brien is one of the foremost experts and he's often on uh, TV. Most recently, I saw him on UFO Declassified on Netflix, but he's been on Guy, Discovery, National Geographic, you name it, History Channel, et cetera. He's, he's been on all of them. But I think that, Ch- but, but he did mention Four Corners. Now, I know there's uh-huh. Four Corners all over the place, but I believe the Four Corners is, e- is either in or near the, the highest alpine valley um which is uh the, the san luis valley which is actually okay way yes out. yes I, I was gonna say just the san luis thing threw me for a loop because i'm not sure exactly but yeah it's it's four corners referring to it's exactly where the states new mexico arizona colorado and utah converge so so right there in that general it's actually a pretty big uh region and then it, and then it creeps all the way up into into Colorado and into Utah um but no it, it's a it's a scientific fact that the ruling elite of this very mysterious uh uh ancient culture which which to some extent vanished uh about only maybe maybe three, 400 years after it established itself in the four corners region, just pretty much just vanished. Um, the native Americans take issue with that. They say, well, they didn't, they didn't vanish. We're, we're them. Uh, that's usually the, usually the, the Hopi, uh, the Hopi tribe gets, gets rather prickly about, about that. But, um, well, don't a lot of the other tribes acknowledge that, that they sort of refer to the Hopi as the old ones. Yeah, it, it's it's complicated because I think, and and this is speculation on my part. I, I'm not denying that, but it seems to me that these ruling elite of Chaco Canyon represent a distinguishable, separate uh, genetic group. So, so I think while the Hopi may have been sort of the primary uh subjects of the anasazi and and then see that that also indicates there's probably some assimilation between the two right so so these anasazi whoever they were probably interbred with the hopi so yes to some extent the hopi are uh the descendants of the anasazi but you know the hopi aren't running around with lots of six fingers and six toads human beings you know so not to mention they also don't still continue to build these very weird astronomically aligned uh stone structures uh so when the anasazi ruling elite collapsed um 
you know, the Hopi went their separate way. Um, but, but anyway, getting back to the whole pattern, it, it, it's really about this pattern of, of large stature human beings with six fingers and six toes, you know, being described in the Bible as sort of these heroes, warriors of renown. And then we find that again in the Maya iconography. And then we find it in the actual archaeology of Chaco Canyon. When you say the, the uh, archaeology, is Chaco Canyon the place where, uh, and you correct me if this is a story or if there is something to it, that where, where the legend has it that something like 16 or 36 giants, I guess these Anasazi, were basically cornered in a cave and the uh, ah. the, the local tribes like you know basically burn them to the, you know lit fires and that's how they finally rid themselves okay so i'm really glad you brought that up because that's the perfect segue um i think it's it's closely related but not exactly chaco canyon so that would be that would be like uh i don't know several hundred miles west of chaco canyon in lovelock cave okay lovelock cave now the native tradition. Now that's more. That's an that's an Ute tradition of the Ute people, and they they do not refer to them as the Anasazi, nor do they make any connection directly to the Anasazi. But but that's really not surprising because the Ute were their whole own different culture. Uh, you know, so Anasazi would be a word that was used by certain tribes. Uh, Anasazi was prime. That tr- that term was primarily used by the Navajo. Uh, to describe this ruling elite tribe, which, yes, was undoubtedly mingled with the Hopi. Now, the Ute have this tradition, which is very closely related and geographically close by, of the Sitaka. Now, Sitaka means uh, uh, Thule eaters or the Thule people, and Thule referring to a fibrous... Uh, uh, lake reed that's a whole nother can of worms right there won't go into it yeah the only fool i knew I, I was uh it's like an egyptian uh suffix uh-huh i i, I could be mispronouncing it it could be tool t-h-t-h-u-l-e uh but i know it refers to a um no again i'm sure you're pronouncing it correctly it's a, it's two like you said two different languages that yeah it's, 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 it's weird these uh, these parallels but um so the ute yes the ute have this tradition that before they entered, and oh, no, okay, so Lovelock Cave is this cave in question, and that's in uh, Nevada, uh, Winnema, Winnemapega, uh, Nevada. It's very rural, desolate, desert Nevada. And um, actually, there is a lake out there. But anyway, the, the, the Ute say that before they arrived in the region, there was a tribe of red-haired giants that lived there before them. And at first, they coexisted with them. But then these red-haired giants started abducting people in the night and cannibalizing them, at which point the Ute said enough is enough, and they warred with them, as you said, ultimately cornering them in this cave where they just hurled fire constantly into the cave until they, you know, killed them. That was long thought to be nothing more than a myth until guano miners 
I forget what year I, w- I want to say in the, in the 30s or something like that. And uh, guano miners in the 30s uh, went into Lovelock Cave, which was just filled with, um, you know, bat, bat waste, which is, has some utilitarian value. And, and they were mining it, and they found all manner of artifacts, including very large, abnormal human remains. Okay. Well, that's amazing. And and yeah. where are those remains now? Okay. So these remains, uh, and, and, and it wasn't just remains, I should point out. They found very large, like, moccasins. Uh, they found duck decoys, which is fascinating. And actually, there, there's a link there back to the, in the biblical book of Enoch, it's apocryphal, but but still, they they make reference to the to the to the Nephilim uh, sinning against uh, snakes and birds, and it seems to somehow be related to their their insatiable appetite. <laughs> well, and, big big people, big appetites. Big people, big appetites, absolutely. And the Book of Enoch also specifically mentions cannibalism. And I was actually, I was actually trying to save this up my sleeve. You know, I don't want to give away too much, but cannibalism is a whole other dimension of the pattern. Of each other or other humans? Both. Ooh. (laughs) Both. Okay. They they were apparently. and, you know, and I think it might even go beyond just like them being large. Um, it, uh, it, it seems that they it, it seems almost like they had an, an addiction, uh, like there was some sort of um, pharmacological addiction to, to like human blood. And, and, and uh, well, you know, yeah, if you go deep into Native American tradition, like. They would hunt bears and and they would they would corner them in caves and they would kill them and at some point they discovered that if they consumed the brain straight away, they would have like a psychedelic hallucinogenic experience because of all the endorphins that are released in the brain at the time of death. Wow, not not worth it if you ask me to ask eat a bear brain, but okay. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm good too on the on the bear brain, but um. <laughs> uh the point is this this pattern uh relates to the Ute and okay right you asked the question where are these remains so they absolutely existed um these excavations were real uh University of California was involved in these excavations they're probably hoarding some stuff as well um but these remains it's it's actually it's just like unbelievable these these remains and are and some artifacts existed in this tiny little shop of a museum if you could call it a museum it's seriously more like a roadside just like trinket store (laughs) um again this is a hard to pronounce it's like winnema winnema puka winnema peka um museum and they just sat there collecting dust not being analyzed not being studied not being publicized uh for decades and decades they just sat there finally you know alternative researchers started getting wise to the fact that these things existed and they were allowed in there uh to take photographs video i myself confirmed that they did exist way back like like early 2000 i saw 
pictures and video of these remains. And I wasn't convinced that they were absolutely real. So I sort of struck up a correspondence with the curator, if you could call her that, of the Winnipeg Museum. And she confirmed, yep, um, she wouldn't send me pictures, but I sent her pictures of the remains that I had seen. And she confirmed, yes, indeed, those are real and we have them here. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, but wait, but okay. Cool. They have since, well, they, they've either gone missing or the museum simply just claims that they no longer have them and they've been repatriated. Oh, um, which I do not believe at all. They actually have a sign. It's really amusing. They have a sign on the door that says like, no giant bones here. <laughs> and, and, and if pressed for details, they will say, yeah, we had bones. They were large, but not gigantic. They were like six foot five. That's their go-to argument that they were, um, that they were six foot five. But I, I know from the photographic analysis, they were, they were very dense which is huge because that means they had a bigger muscular frame. And in some instances, I mean, like the, the homo sapien uh, mandible fits very comfortably inside the mandible of one of these Sitaka mandibles. So in other words, it completely eclipses it. Like they were very large. How, how large exactly to me is somewhat irrelevant. Um, I, I suspect these were not Homo sapiens, or 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 Homo sapien hominid hybrids of some kind. Certainly sounds like that. And you mentioned earlier that um, they were redheaded, which mm -hmm. obviously is pretty unusual for Native Americans. Absolutely, um, not not a lot of redheaded people in you know uh, in lots of places in the world. At least not you know naturally. It's sort of a European trait, but I, I've heard tales of redheaded either greys or giants or all of the above, not just here, but also South America, mm -hmm. uh, Easter Island, in yep. Australia, and, and all sorts of Polynesian stories. Um, do you think there's a connection there, or is there anything? Is what I'm talking about just, just legends or stories versus this is, you know, factual or uh, what's your take on this? I, I would say that's absolutely legitimate. Um, uh, so even even mainstream, and there's actually a very interesting connection here, because mainstream uh, mainstream science, mainstream anthropology is making all sorts of breakthroughs um, every day regarding uh, archaic hominid uh, genes. Because the genetic technology is just, it's just, um, it's just taking off. It's just launching like a rocket ship, and we're just learning so many new things. And actually, it's it's very problematic for them because it's contradicting a lot of their orthodoxy. But one of these things we've learned recently uh, is this is this gene, this uh, this gene marker associated with red hair, and and this gene marker associated with red hair has been identified in Neanderthals. Okay, now Neanderthals are, of course, hominids, and they, uh, I think, were very much related to this whole thing. And and I think what you're touching on there is like, oh yeah, there's legends of of these red-headed, fair-skinned, you know, giants or whatever 
in in South America, Easter Island, and now we, you know we have them here in Lovelock Cave. Um, that you you're scratching the surface there of this pattern to which I'm referring, and that that's the that's the genetic uh, dimension of this pattern, which absolutely includes uh, red hair. Definitely, um, it's not universal. Like everywhere you find red hair, there's you know. Um, but there's definitely a genetic link with these hominids. There are large proportions. Actually, in some cases, they might have even been really small. The best way to say it is that they were physically unique uh, or distinguishable from Homo sapiens. Uh, but red hair is definitely an aspect of that, yes. What I know of Neanderthals, which is you know not all that much, is that they were thicker, broader, more muscled, bigger skulls, but generally shorter than their uh, Homo sapien counterparts. That's right. That's right. Um, so do you think that the yeah. the Nephilim uh, just uh, interbred with the uh, Neanderthal more? Um, or that the, I know that there's some consensus that the Neanderthal basically sort of bred themselves out of existence and they interbred with you know, uh, Homo sapiens sapiens, Denisovans, et cetera, and mm-hmm. maybe did the same thing with the Nephilim? Well, I think, actually, the Nephilim are the progenitors of the entire Neanderthal subspecies. Oh, okay. The same, same well, remember, you know, earlier I spoke of, you know, or originally there are these pure-blooded Nephilim who then interbreed with Homo sapiens creating yet another strain of hybridized uh, invasive species. And then that would, that would mean that the sort of the biblical story is some sort of oral tradition that was passed down, I don't know, what, 200,000 years, something like that? I, 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 think, I think so. I mean, they, you know, the biblical authors may have sort of just been retelling, you know, sort of the tail end revised version of it. Um, I mean, but, I think yeah. that the most recent Neanderthals are said to have lived about 45,000 years ago, but obviously they they emerged way before that. Right. So obviously the Nephilim would have to be before that by, I don't know, several hundred thousand years. So, that's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously we have oral, uh, you know, oral memories or collective memories or there, there may even be something more, uh, you know, genetically past memories, which exists in plenty of species. Um, uh, you know, of, of less sophisticated brained animals than we are. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but the, so that, that's your, that's the thesis. Uh, in a, in a nutshell. Sure. I, I am. I'm glad you mentioned, uh, the Denisovans. So now that they're starting to crack the genetic code of Neanderthals, Denisovans and others like Heidelbergensis and, uh, Homo uh, uh, floresiensis and, and and the like. Those are the, those are the Hobbit people, right? The, those are the Hobbit people. That's right. About three foot six inches tall. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been that's been confirmed, like uh, in in the poly, in Southeast Asia and in the South Pacific, but also now in I think I think they've confirmed it in the Americas as well. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure about the Americas. I I was looking for that, but um, so. 
Who's the, 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 the name you said before, the Homo flora? Flores, Floresiensis. I think you said something like Heidelberg man or some, something like that. Heidel, yes, Heidelbergensis. What is that? So Heidelbergensis is a more ancient, archaic human ancestor. Um, you know, so like you were saying, Neanderthals, you know, 40,000 years. Oh, I, I would like to point out, too, that that number is rapidly trending younger and younger. So, like, it wasn't long ago where they thought, you know, Neanderthals, Neanderthals died out, you know, 100,000 years ago. Now they've, they've, they're forced to backpedal on that and say 40,000 years, and it just keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised. As this is going to sound, you know, go ahead and go ahead and lock me, make my reservation at the loony bin. But they might even be uh, still in existence to, to this day. Oh, okay. Uh, but but anyway, <laughs> yeah, just leave that for later. Um, but Heidelbergens, this man, is a more, according to the narrative and the remains that we have found, is a more ancient, uh, larger uh, human archaic ancestor. Um, there's some evidence that they were quite quite large. Uh, you know, you know, six foot eight, seven feet tall. What was the school? What was the the I don't know, genus, whatever the right term is, of the skull that was found at the bottom of that well in China, they call it Dragon Man? Ah, yeah. You know, off the top of my head, I'm not sure what conclusion they came down on. But it's it's fairly recent. Yeah, well, yeah, and I I was going to say, this happens every time they find an anomalous, archaic, uh, a set of human remains. They they launch into an argument about how to classify it, and the guys who found it always want to create a new species because they want to be the finder of a new species. And so you know, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, I, I I don't know, but I don't know, but it doesn't really matter whatever they say, they can call it, you know, homo nephilimus, but it, it's, it's going to be another, uh, another piece of this mosaic of, of archaic humans and, and their weird hybridization and, and, uh, invasive species. Um, but yeah, China actually, I, I think there's a lot to be discovered in, in, in central and far Eastern, uh, Asia. Absolutely. Some really interesting stuff. Oh, I'm sure. All right. Um, so, all right. So we're not going to put a date on it because that's probably too much to, to ask for. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, did I space on a, on a, uh, a question about a date about, I'm sorry. What was no, 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 no. I, you know, I, I was trying to bog you down on something or pin you down on something that probably is not possible to, to pin you down on, which is, when you think the Nephilim uh, were uh, a distinct race, uh, mm. uh, assuming that you, um, uh, you know, I, 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 we didn't even really get to. Do you, do you actually think that they are uh, that they were half angel, or or you're not committed to the angel part? It's just something, some being we don't understand. Yeah, well, I'll I'll, I'll take a shot at it. I'll, I'll do my best. Um, it, I mean. You know, yes, it should first be noted that this is a great and incredibly mind-boggling mystery. But 
Uh, okay. So do I, am I committed to, I will say that the pattern, the, the cultural pattern, which as I noted is, is practically universal in all these different cultures. They all seem to indicate that these, you know, these divine beings, these deities, what, whatever they may be interbred with mortal women spawning this race of giants or these Nephilim. Now, okay, so I, I would say that that was the original, and yes, because it's so because it's so universal in all the ancient cultures. I think there, I, I, I think that is a stylized recollection of a historical event. Now, you know, what are these sons of God, angels, fallen angels, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, we could just say that they are, you know, non-human elder life forms and whether or not they're extraterrestrial or or interdimensional or, you know, that that's all complete mystery. So um, but it seems that this this uh, archaic race of humans was spawned by the interbreeding of a non-human species and human women, homo sapien women. And that would explain to some extent why their features are so weird and abnormal. And even like the, uh, uh, the part of the pattern with this insatiable hunger. See, to me, as an anthropologist, I'm, I'm seeing evidence of, of an invasive species. You know, it's like it's like the snakehead fish here in Maryland. People brought it here from Asia. They they put it in the water, the fresh water, and because it has no natural predators, it becomes like the ultimate invasive apex predator, and it just destroys uh, everything. Yeah, I can't believe how many times people have tried to do that, thinking that they're going to do something good, and right now they're thinking of like inserting mastodon DNA into Indian elephants and basically making a modern form of a uh, Mastodon or a more sturdy Indian elephant. And I mean, it, it, it's like, I understand the theory. I understand that they're trying to uh, make, uh, you know, good, do good things for the soil and in, in sort of step lands and, and uh, high desert and stuff like that. Um, but when is creating, <laughs> having an invasive species come in ever, ever turned out to be a good idea? Yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. It, it's weird. I have sort of a, I, I'm sort of conflicted when they talk about uh, genetically cloning some of these archaic or extinct species. It's totally fascinating to me. And like, in my imagination, I, I would love to see it. Yeah, but I mean, why, but, why couldn't they just mega breed, you know, musk oxen or something yeah. or dax and yeah. accomplish the same thing? Why, why, why introduce prehistoric <laughs> elephants? No, into the I, world? I agree a hundred percent. Yeah, and you really don't want to start messing with invasive species uh, uh, deliberately, especially when you know. I mean, the ecosystem is so uh, delicate and fragile, and we're so dependent on it. Yeah, I really don't think you want to just like you know start introducing some reason maybe maybe they think that they're the only things big enough that wouldn't be you know 
hunted by wolves and lead to an explosion of wolf population or something. I mean, there's, there's got to be some reason that they're ignoring, you know, what the <laughs> what Blue Oyster Cult taught us in Godzilla. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I think, I think again, it, it comes down to money and profit. Like these scientists find a way where they think they can somehow, you know, conjure up a profit by some funky genetic voodoo science. And that's all they need, you know. That's all they need to hear, and they're 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 going for it. And uh, yeah, it's probably not going to work out. Well, this uh, Nephilim thing does does sort of, I mean, that you know explains the whole concept of a demigod, like like Hercules, who was the you know the greatest hero of the Greek gods, but he was only half god, and that would explain why he was bigger and stronger than than you know everyone except Zeus, basically. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Gilgamesh, you know the the you know, the oldest written hero that we're aware of though maybe not older than king og but uh gilgamesh was two-thirds divine and one-third human but his mother was a witch so it's, no exactly exactly and you know that's it, it's things like that when you read them you start to piece together this pattern like oh they're they're specifically referencing you know that gilgamesh who by the way I'm fairly confident is uh, equivalent of the biblical Nimrod. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it says he's two parts, two parts divine, one part mortal, and that he's this great hunter of men and, and the people are all sort of afraid of him. And he goes around and what does he do? He, he founds cities, right? He builds ziggurats, which are essentially uh, Mesopotamian pyramids. Right. And then they, they bring Enkidu, who's also sort of a giant, but a hairy giant. Ah, uh, yes. They end up being, they, be, they become best friends and then have adventures. But the point is, is that Enkidu, if you stretch your imagination just a little bit, isn't too far apart from Sasquatch, Urine, Bigfoot, you know, a, a, whole, a whole lot of other, you know, myths that are, and stories that are out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think it could be just one of those uh, subspecies you were talking about, that there's lots of different kinds of Nephilim. You know, I, I've heard Gaborim before. I didn't I've never heard the others, um, but Gaborim, actually, I heard from one of the other panelists about a year ago. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no. So, yeah, I, you know, that's the fun part. You're, you're dealing with the science part. So. I probably shouldn't lead you into uh, my rank punditry. No, uh, no, no. I, 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 you know, it is um, like I, I, I try really hard to stick to the, uh, to stick to the, to the, to the evidence. But you know, the speculation is is fun, and it, and it is, um, well, it, it's, it's just uh, mind blowing, really. And uh, and I will try one time, you know, for the date that you like. I, if I had to, you know, um, okay, so if I just look at the whole totality of all the human remains ever discovered, with the exception of these alleged upright apes who are like 2 million years old, you know, around, around four or 500,000 uh, BCE is when we really start seeing the sort of explosion of human remains. Yeah, right. it could very well be, you know, I mean, we we only have a tiny fraction to look at of all the, you know, all the remains that are possibly out there and life forms that have ever existed. So that's like incredibly loose. Like it could be like give or take, you know, 250,000 or not, 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 not give actually, but 
or, or not take, but you know, it could be 250,000 years or even double um, that. But that is really when all these weird humans and Homo sapiens, honestly, start appearing in the archaeological records like 400,000 years ago, somewhere around there. A couple of weeks back, we had uh, Bruce Fenton on the show, and, and he has a theory that between 800,000 and 600,000 years ago, um, that there were that several events objectively happened that were there were all astronomical. Um, and you know, if you, if you take your bigger number of 500,000, you're only 100,000 years. And, you know, evolution, even genetically tinkered evolution, um, maybe takes 100,000 years. Or like you said, give or take. I mean, we're talking about big numbers. Um, so I, I think if people listen to, I think I called the show, the show 780,000 BC or panspermia 780,000 BC. If you listen to that one and then this one, uh, you know, you may be close to, reconciling the, those those two things anyway that's an interesting show to, in and of itself but yeah that, that's 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 cool we'll, you know we'll, we'll settle for 500,000 BCE that, that's okay um and really we're only in you know 2021 CE so uh you know uh, uh, we'll, we'll now that's just a rounding error at that point um so yeah so is there, is there anything else that you want to tell us any sort of like you know big uh, uh, summation line or, or theory or something that you uh, that, that you need to tell us now that you you know feel like you should uh, uh, tell the world about? Well, um, there was something I, I wanted to read earlier, and I'm just going to read it really quick. I, I just want, you know, your listeners to know that hard scientific evidence for this does exist. And I don't mean, oh, it's hidden away somewhere that, you know, it, it does exist. And I wanted to point to a couple things. So in, so there were like 1500 of these news reports in America from like the late or the mid, mid 19th century to the early 20th century. And they all talk about, you know, burial mounds being excavated by the Smithsonian, finding weird giant skeletons. And all of that has been pretty much dismissed as yellow journalism. But I just want to read this for the for the listeners. So. The Bureau of Ethnology is basically the Smithsonian before the Smithsonian existed. Okay, and they have archives of reports of these excavations that did occur. And one of them reads 19 feet from the top, meaning of the burial mound, in the remains of a bark coffin measuring seven and a half feet tall and 19 inches across the shoulders, a skeleton was discovered. And that's the 12th annual report of the Bureau of Ethnology. Now, see, I just want to I just want, you know, the listeners to know that because that is the Smithsonian. <laughs> that is a Smithsonian report right there. So that that's not yellow journalism. That's their own archival uh, information. And that is only one of, you know, maybe a hundred of such reports. And then one other thing is that if you go all the way across the globe uh, to Siberia and the species we mentioned earlier, the Denisovans, a Denisovan tooth has been discovered. And it is absolutely 
gigantic. I mean, there's no other word for it. Enormous, gargantuan. This, this tooth is huge. And it is a scientific fact, you know, backed by peer-reviewed studies that essentially the bigger the tooth, the bigger the person and vice versa. You, you can't have a person with like an abnormally huge tooth. It just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. And so um, mainstream science has evidence, you know, that these things are real. And um, that's really just the point I want to drive home, that if, if you seek, you shall find. If you, you look at the archaeological and anthropological evidence um, um, with, you know, with an open and objective mind, then you will start to see these parallels and these patterns with the ancient traditions. And I, I, I'll, I'll just finish on this note right here. So, you know, they say we cannot accept mythology at face value. You know, thank you very much, Indiana Jones. And, and, that, <laughs> and that is true. We can't accept mythology at face value. Okay, but to dismiss it as ancient fiction without objective investigation is equally flawed reasoning. And that's what academia does. They automatically dismiss it as fiction, which is kind of ironic because they say don't fall to fundamental literalism, but then they immediately fall to fundamental figurativism, right? So if you meet in the middle and you open your mind and you seek objectively, you will find the hard evidence. It's, it's out there. Well, Avi Loeb agrees with you, and he said basically follow Sherlock Holmes' maxim that you – when you eliminate the impossible, what's left is possible. That is absolutely right. Inductive so, reasoning is my go-to uh, in life. Well, folks, don't worry, because Mark's going to be back. I don't know exactly when, but we're going to have him back. He's going to do a, a show on comparative mythology. We may have to also do one on all these different uh, subspecies of the Nephilim, because as everybody knows, that's sort of the reason why this show was created. Um, so... We'll, we'll see about that. But where can people find you if they're looking for you, if they want to read your work, if, if they want to follow you, et cetera? Sure, sure. So um, I am a, a regular contributor for Ancient Origins magazine. So, you know, you go to ancientorigins.com and you search up Mark A. Carpenter. I've written something like 30 articles for them over the past year. Um, I am launching a website. It's just going to be like markacarpenter.com. It's not actually out just yet. And I also have two books that will be published, you know, hopefully by, I would say, Christmas. Um, one is called Paradigm Lost, and the other is called The World Heritage Cover-Up. So those, you know, it's kind of a coming soon sort of thing. But you can find me on Ancient Origins. Uh, I, I mean, I have an Instagram, you know, uh, MMAACC7, Max7, Mark A. Carpenter. That's, uh, that's my Instagram. But um, yeah. Oh, and of course, I will be at the Nephilim Anthropology uh, Conference uh, virtually. I will not be there physically, but I have a presentation that will be there for anybody who would like to learn more. Yeah, and there's a lot of different... Um takes on what the Nephilim are there. There's there's a divergence of, uh, of opinion in there, so check that out. By the way, if you do want to get tickets, uh, the good news and the bad news is, th is that the premiere of the VIP tickets are sold out. Um, 
if for those listeners who are in the UK or might be going to UK, there are still in-person tickets available. I don't know what the conversion is, but it looked like it was 27.25 pounds. Um, and but there's there is regular tickets available for virtual, which is I think it was a like 22.75 pounds. So so I think it's roughly you know or, uh, you know under 30 bucks to to see this. As far as buying tickets, you can go to l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e backslash n-a-c-o-n u-k so linktr dot e-e backslash nacon u-k uh, and that'll take you or you can just uh, go to the, look for the Nephilim Anthropology Conference on uh, Facebook uh, hybrid roundtables and it'll take you right to there where you can buy tickets but it looks like uh, looks like they're doing pretty well on sales so Anyway, I thank you so much, Mark. I look forward to talking to you again about other stuff. We're doing a little bit of a shorter episode today, just because it's a bonus episode. Um, but yeah, then they can catch your presentation this coming Saturday. So thanks again, Mark. Thanks for coming in, and we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, hey, Jeff. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. Excellent. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning into the Garden of Doom, and we should have another show up for you this coming weekend. Take care, all.